0: All right, once again, good evening. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation chapter 4? As we have said uh, a couple of times, we have officially entered into the last section of the book of Revelation according to the outline that Jesus gave us in chapter 1, verse 19, The longest section in the book covering chapters 4 through 22. And we're going to just jump in. So verse 1. After these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying come up here. And I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the spirit. And behold, a throne set in heaven, and once sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. As I've been saying, chapter 4, verse 1, I believe, signals the rapture of the church. And so the scene now switches from earth to heaven, as John is snatched from earth to heaven and begins to tell us what he is now seeing. And as I pointed out before, the church once seated with Christ in heavenly places heavenly places spiritually, Ephesians 2 verse 6 tells us, is now seen safely seated with Christ in heaven, literally, before the judgment of God is poured out on this Christ-rejecting world. Upon being raptured to heaven, guys, John sees the throne of God and describes the Father as one like a jasper and sardius stone in appearance. Now, obviously, he's not saying that God looked like a jasper and sardius stone. I believe John is attempting to describe the God of light using multicolored, he's describing Trying to describe multicolored lights emanating from the throne of God using various colored, precious gemstones. Here he's, he talks about the jasper stone. We learned from Revelation chapter 21, verse 11, it was a clear stone, so it would emanate a, a white light. And then the sardius stone was a blood red stone. Together, as we've already talked about, they speak of purity and redemption. Purity and redemption. Again, verse 3, and he who sat there was like a jasper and sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. We're reviewing a little bit from last time because we didn't meet last week. So just to review a little bit, the first time we see a rainbow in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 9, where God used it as a sign of his promise, his covenant to the world that he would never again destroy the earth with a flood. That was the Noahic covenant established in chapter 9 of the book of Genesis. This rainbow, we we learn from verse 5, is coupled with thunderings and lightnings, which, as we said last time, are symbols of a storm that is coming upon the earth. Usually a rainbow appears after the storm, but here we see it, appear before the storm in heaven in revelation chapter four we see that the judgment is about to fall once again on the whole on the whole world Uh, the bible records two worldwide judgments two worldwide judgments one in the days of noah which was the flood all right we've already looked at that there's another worldwide judgment coming and uh, it's going to come after the church has been raptured to heaven And uh, we call it, or the Bible calls it, the tribulation period, again, a worldwide judgment. Uh, But the rainbow appearing before this judgment indicates that God is going to be merciful, uh, even as he is judging the world. Uh, The rainbow in Noah's day was, yes, the sign of the covenant that God was not ever again going to destroy the earth with a flood, all right? And so it was God's way of saying, I could have destroyed the entire world, but I spared eight people, and from those eight people, God repopulated the earth. Uh, It's interesting, as we talked about last time, and I could be wrong. I kind of feel this is right. Some have proposed that God is going to show mercy to this world during the tribulation period judgment by saving, listen, more people during the tribulation period, which is going to be seven years in length, Than he did in the previous 2,000 years of church history from Pentecost to the rapture. As we said last time, there are more people living on earth right now, close to 8 billion, than have ever lived on the earth in all the years that man has been on the earth. Well, from the, um, I would go back all the way to the very beginning, but especially from the beginning of the new covenant. Uh, the the first century uh, period and then after. So uh, God is going to show great mercy in that. Uh, Yes, judgment is coming. But the judgment is going to start light, if I can put it that way, and spaced uh, so that And every time God's going to bring some judgment, uh, he's going to pull back, give people time to repent. He's going to do this numerous times until everyone who is going to repent has repented at that point we're going to move into the second half of the tribulation period what some have what the bible calls the great tribulation period or as jesus put it matthew 24 uh, likening the whole period to a woman in labor this is going to now be equivalent to hard labor for a woman that is now going to be giving birth soon and of course the pain becomes more and more uh rapid spaced closer together and more intense until the child is born that's what's going to happen to this world uh, in the second half of the tribulation period. God is going to be pouring out one cataclysmic judgment after another, and the earth is going to be reeling until finally Jesus comes and the kingdom is birthed and there is peace. Like a woman, after she has given birth, all the pain has ceased. She's at peace. A beautiful child has entered the world. She's filled with joy, and that's how it's going to be when the kingdom is birthed and so on. So God is going to be very merciful, even in judgment. I think it was the prophet Hosea uh, said to the Lord, Lord, in judgment, remember mercy. And our God always does. Our God always does. Again, verse four, around the throne, John said there were 24 thrones. And on the thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. Now, Last time we saw that these 24 elders can really only be one group, and that is the Church of Jesus Christ. Go back if you'd like to and, and listen to the study. Uh, if you get the 24 elders wrong, if you misinterpret who they are, and a lot of folks do, I, I'm not saying I know for sure that they're the church, but we we eliminated every other possibility. It had to be the church. That has to be the church, these guys. If you If you misinterpret who the 24 elders are, you're going to misinterpret the rest of the book. Very important. And I believe that they represent the church of Jesus Christ. Verse 5, John said, And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Once again, guys, in nature, lightning and thunder always indicate that a storm is coming. But here, they indicate that a storm of judgment is coming as they remind us of God's awesome power. We looked at some scriptures where God uh, talks about uh, his power being manifested through thunderings and lightnings. When Moses went up on top of Mount Sinai to receive the law, right? Uh, The mountain quaked. Uh, There was earthquakes and thunder and lightnings. And it was just God's way of, of, of just demonstrating how powerful he is and so on. We see also in verse 5, it says that before the throne were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now that throws us uh, somewhat. Um, These seven lamps of fire represent the Holy Spirit in all of His fullness and majesty. There are not seven Holy Spirits. There's only one Holy Spirit. So why is He likened to seven spirits? Well, Commentators agree, uh, well, not all of them, but most of them uh, seem to believe that um, this is just, the number seven represents in Scripture perfection and completeness. And uh, this is just a way of talking about the sevenfold uh, ministry of the Holy Spirit, his attributes, but that he is, of course, perfect, he's complete, he's God Almighty, the third person of the Trinity, and so on. So I do see... We do see in chapters 4 and 5, God the Father on the throne, before the throne the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 5, the Lamb is going to walk up to the throne of His Father and take the scroll, begin to break the seals, which leads into chapter 6, which begins to unleash God's judgments upon this earth. We'll see that as we get there. Uh, Beginning of verse 6, John said, Before the throne there was a sea of glass, like crystal now that is interesting to me uh, you remember from our study in exodus if you were with us that the tabernacle the portable uh tent of meeting they would bring it wherever they wandered in the wilderness and when the shekinah glory stopped they would quickly set it up it was called the tent of meeting because there god and man came together for the purpose of fellowship sin was atoned for Uh, And fellowship was allowed then. And so the tabernacle in the wilderness, we are told, was a model of the throne of God in heaven. A model of the throne of God in heaven. Uh, You remember uh, the scene, uh, you know, when Moses came down from the mountain, right? Uh, Unfortunately, uh, and I love the movie, The Ten Commandments, uh, when Charleston Heston came down, uh, Charlton Heston came down. Uh, they, they blew it because they had under his arm the the tablets uh, the, the two tablets of the law, but under the other arm should have been a very detailed set of blueprints for the building of the tabernacle. No doubt that's what God gave to Moses, unless he supernaturally stamped it on his brain, which he could have done. Okay, But God not only gave Moses the law in the form of the Ten Commandments, Uh, written on tablets of stone, but he also gave him some very specific instructions for building this tabernacle, this uh, forerunner to the temple that Solomon would eventually build. That was permanent. This was temporary and portable because it had to go with them wherever they wandered in the wilderness, right? And uh, you remember how that, you had uh, this enclosure this, this curtain that went around, I think it was 75 feet wide by 150 foot long, that was the enclosure itself, the outer court, okay? One door uh, was really a, just an opening that led into the outer court of the tabernacle now. And uh, Jesus, of course, said, I am the door. Anyone who tries to come in any other way the same as a thief and a robber, correct? Everything about the tabernacle pointed to Jesus Christ. If you can still get a copy of the book by M.R. Dehan called The Tabernacle, get it. If this interests you at all, you will be blessed. All right. One of the best books I've ever read. On the, he goes through great detail, pointing out, out how everything in the tabernacle related to Christ. Uh, so you walk into the enclosure now, the outer court, and you come to uh, the brazen altar that was where the animals were sacrificed after the priest sacrificed the animal he would then walk now to what was called the laver the laver was for a lack of a better description looked like a large bird bath. it couldn't be too big they had they had to drag it through the wilderness everywhere they went now when Solomon built it uh, when he built the temple he made it gigantic seven and a half foot high Sitting on 12 oxen, three facing each direction, the thing was about 15 feet in diameter. Gigantic thing, all right? But in the wilderness, much smaller. The laver represented the word of God. Uh, Ephesians 5.26, we wash in the water of the word. That's how we maintain practical fellowship with the Lord. We're in the world, we are in the world, we're not to be of the world, but once you go out into the world every day and rub shoulders with the world, some of the defilement gets onto us, doesn't it? I mean, you're listening to the language and the jokes, and, and you're seeing stuff on billboards, and it's a very decadent world we're living in now. And a lot, Some of that can't help but get you know, into our heads and into our brains and so on. We need to just come home and take a bath in the work, right? And, and, and let the word of God just cleanse you and convict you and you, and you need to you know, confess your sins and whatever. And this restores fellowship. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and then our fellowship is restored. And that was the idea. The priest didn't realize it, but we know from the new covenant looking backward, that's what it was. So the priest would wash in this laver. And then he would go into the tabernacle proper, which was really made up of two compartments. The first was called the holy place. And if you were a priest back then, you would walk into this uh, first compartment. To your right would be a small golden table called the table of showbread. Each week, 12 loaves were baked fresh and put on the table of showbread, one for each of the 12, 12 tribes of Israel. And of course, the old loaves were given to the priests for them and their families to eat. To the uh, left would be the only light source in the tabernacle, the menorah, the seven-branched oil-burning lampstand. Again, everything pointed to Jesus. He's the bread of life. He's the light of the world. Right in front of that second compartment, which was called the most holy place, or the holy of holies, was a small golden altar upon which the priest would burn incense, which represented the prayers of the saints. And of course, the priest and only the high priest could do this once a year on the day of Yom Kippur. Would enter into that second compartment, uh, but only after many washings, many changes of clothing, many animal sacrifices. Uh, would the high priest on on the day of Yom Kippur walk into that second compartment, where the holy of holies, uh, where the um, Ark of the Covenant was, uh, this box. Uh, That was made of wood overlaid with gold, two foot three inches wide by three foot nine inches uh, long, two foot three inches high as well. On top was a a lid made of solid gold called the mercy seat. And you remember how the cherubs were, the the two two cherubs, cherubim plural, uh, on the top there kneeling, uh, facing one another with their heads bowed down, their wings coming, uh, uh, almost touching directly above the mercy seat and that's where the blood was sprinkled on Yom Kippur for the sins of the nation that had not been atoned for a lot of sins during the year had not been atoned for and this was a way of setting the record straight where now the nation was purged of sin and they could have God's grace and favor again uh there's a point to all of this I'm getting to it okay um What what I wanted to say, too, is that, you know, um, as we were talking about how that, you know, the labor represents God's word, Ephesians 5.26, and uh, how that we wash in it every day to, uh, you know, wash away the the sin that we may have picked up in the world as we went out into the world during our our day to work and go to school, whatever we we do during the week. But now the rapture has happened. In Revelation chapter 4, the church is in heaven. We have our glorified bodies, bodies that don't sin anymore. And therefore, we don't need to wash the filth of the world off of us anymore by being in the Word. Now the labor is no more in heaven. And what has replaced it is the glassy sea. It still represents the Word of God, all right? The glassy sea upon which the saints of God now stand we even talk about this kind of thing even today we we say we're standing on the word what does that mean it means i'm standing on a promise of god that has not been fulfilled yet but i'm fully convinced if god has promised it he is going to fulfill it if i ask and i believe right and so symbolically right now we're standing on the word but in heaven someday We're going to be literally standing on the word, which is now a glassy sea, a solid in the sense that these are promises that have all been fulfilled. We're not anymore waiting for a promise of God to be fulfilled. We're standing on all the promises that God has ever given us. We're here in heaven. And in that regard, we are standing now on the word uh, literally. Well, verse 6 John said, before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures, full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like a calf. Actually, it's an ox. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Now, this is very much like what Ezekiel saw when he had a vision of the throne of God. Let me read to you Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 10. Ezekiel saw a vision of God's throne. He described it as, uh, as for the likeness of their faces, talking about these angelic beings, beings. Each had the face of a man, each had the four, uh, excuse me, each had the face of a man. Each of the four had the face of a lion on the right side. Each of the four had the face of an ox on the left side. And each of the four had the face of an eagle. So what Ezekiel sees is there are these angelic beings that, that have one face, but in different directions on their face, the various uh, images here of the lion, ox, and uh, a man, eagle, and so on. In verse uh, chapter ten, verse twenty, Ezekiel said, "This is the living creature I saw under the under the God of Israel by the river River Kibar, and I knew they were cherubim. Each one had four faces, and each of each one four wings. And the likeness of the hands of a man was under their wings." Jesus said in Psalm forty, verse seven. The scroll of the book is written about me. The book you have in your laps is all about Jesus from start to finish. The Word, right? We call it the Word. It's the Word of God. Jesus Christ is the Word, right? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. The Word was God, and so on. And so we have Jesus Christ in print. Everything about the Bible points to Jesus and um, many commentators see in the four gospels the four faces of the cherubim here in Revelation chapter 4 that surround the throne of God the lion the ox the man and the eagle in fact someone has described it as Jesus Christ in quadraphonic now some of you young folks uh, were not around when quadraphonic was getting popular they dropped it. it was just too hard to do uh, so we have stereo, but I remember when when quadraphonic was getting very popular, you know, and you'd have four different sounds coming out of four different speakers, and it was pretty cool, but um, uh, it was not really feasible for a lot of reasons. But anyways, um, some have, this, obviously, who said this was an old-timer, like me, Uh But someone has described this as Jesus Christ in quadraphonic. Now, let me go through this quickly. I think you'll find it fascinating, all right? The four Gospels, right? Starting with Matthew. Now, Matthew was a Jew. And the theme of his Gospel was to present to Israel their Messiah, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And if he's going to present Jesus to the Jewish people as their Messiah, he's got to trace the genealogy of Jesus Christ back To Abraham, who was the father of the Jewish people, which he does, all right? The second gospel is Mark. The theme of Mark's gospel is to present Jesus Christ as a suffering servant. Of course, the ox is the symbol of a beast of burden. It's interesting that Mark's gospel is the only one that doesn't contain a genealogy. Why? Who cares about the genealogy of a servant? Luke, the theme of Luke's gospel is to, to, to present the humanity of Christ, that Jesus is the son of man, right? And so Luke traces his gospel all the way back to Adam, the genealogy of Christ, all the way back to Adam, who was the first man. And then we have John. John's is interesting. John's is majestic. John's gospel is unique. We talk about the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Synoptic is a word that means similar. John's gospel is completely different. There's focused on Jesus' Galilean ministry, John's on his Judean ministry. John spends one half of his entire book on the last 12 hours of Jesus' life to really zero in. But the theme of John's gospel is to present the deity of Christ, the deity of Christ, and that he is the son of God, right? The eagle is the king of birds. And as such is the king of the heavens. Often used in scripture as a uh, a picture of God himself. Uh, The eagle representing the Lord oftentimes. God using that imagery, right? Here's the thing. Does John's gospel have a genealogy? Kind of. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. Interesting, right? Now, there's something else I thought you would find fascinating. I do, hopefully you will. Whenever Israel, now we're talking about the Tabernacle, right? Whenever Israel and the Shekinah glory this pillar of fire by night, pillar of cloud by day. And, and I guys imagine the Shekinah glory is not just a little thing, okay? I I ever seen some of those like massive tornadoes that are like a mile or more wide. You ever go online and look at those? It's incredible. And I believe that the Shekinah glory was something like that. I mean, during the day, uh, God took the form of a pillar of cloud, and that pillar of cloud gave shade to 3 million people in the wilderness. It had to be pretty big. At night, God took the form of a pillar of fire, which gave light and warmth to 3 million people in the wilderness. We're talking something very large. Whenever the Shekinah glory started to move, that was their signal, break up, break camp and start moving. And whenever the Shekinah glory stopped and hovered over a, a place, that was their cue to set up camp. And here's what God told them. God gave them very specific instructions on how they were to set up camp down to the fact of how they were to be grouped, how they were to be grouped. Look, If every jot and tittle is put there by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, don't you know, God is a God of details. We often get lazy and rush through our Bible reading. And we don't really take the time to look for these little treasures. Let's be honest, we get so lazy, if the gold nuggets are not just sitting on top of the ground, where we can just pick them up, we don't ever dig. Now, The nuggets on top of the ground, they're a blessing, no doubt about it. But when you dig them out for yourself, wow, wow. And God was very specific in how they were to set up the camp. They were to set up the camp with the tabernacle in the middle with three tribes to the north, three tribes to the east, three tribes to the south, and three tribes to the west. Each group of three had a lead tribe, had a lead tribe, and was to rally around that lead tribe's flag containing its insignia. We get all this from Numbers 2, which tells us not only the groupings, but which tribes lined up in which direction. Okay, let me read them to you. Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, were to camp on the east side of the tabernacle and were known as the camp of Judah. Their flag was a gold lion on a scarlet background. Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin were to camp on the west side of the tabernacle and were known as the camp of Ephraim. Their flag insignia was a black ox on a field of gold. Reuben, Simeon, and Gad were to camp on the south side and were known as the camp of of Reuben. Reuben's symbol, his flag was a man on a field of gold. And then you had Dan, Naphtali, and Asher who were to camp to the north side of the tabernacle and were known as the camp of Dan, signified by a gold eagle on a field of blue. Now, why am I making such a big deal out of this? Because the Holy Spirit made a big deal out of it to communicate to us something that was a big deal. You see, every time Israel set up camp in the wilderness as God commanded, guess what? They were a model of the throne of God in heaven. But not only that, Numbers chapter 2 gives us the total number of each group of three. Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun numbered 186,400 men and they were to camp on the east side of the tabernacle Ephraim Manasseh and Benjamin numbered 108,100 and were to camp on the west side of the tabernacle Reuben Simeon and Gad numbered 151,400 and were to camp on the south side of the tabernacle and then Dan Naphtali and Asher Numbered one hundred fifty-seven thousand six hundred, and were to camp on the north side of the tabernacle. Now, I want you to understand this. If you don't get this, you're going to miss this. This beautiful imagery. Okay. The people of God had just come out of Egypt not long ago, right? And they were they were supposed to go right into the Promised Land after they spent about a, about a, eight months to a year in the wilderness building the tabernacle and establishing the priesthood they were supposed to go right in right but they didn't do that because when they came to the border of the land they sent the the, god sent the 12 spies in you remember the story ten brought back an evil report we can't go into this land there's giants there they're gonna kill us let's go back to egypt but joshua and caleb the two faithful spies said no they're big uh, but god is stronger let's go in and take it he's given it to us And so the people listened to the 10 evil spies did not go in, and God forced them to wander then for 40 years until that older generation died out, right from 20 and above, and their children would enter the promised land. The point I'm making is after that failure, the people realized that they really needed to obey God in everything he said to the letter. Now, when you think of this, when God, we know that the tabernacle had an enclosure, right? And uh, it wasn't that big, but about 75 feet wide and so on. When God told his people to camp to the east, he didn't mean the southeast or the northeast. He meant the east, and they knew that. And so they camped to the east of the tabernacle and went as far back as they needed to go to stay just to the east. And not bleed over into the northeast or southeast, right? And that went for every direction. North, south, east, and west. They camped strictly, strictly to those directions without bleeding over. In other words, they weren't to form just a big mass of people. God was doing something, right? And he had, very specifically he told them what to do. Now, with that in mind, notice that the Holy Spirit goes to great lengths to tell us the exact number of each of the tribes in each direction when they set up camp. You know, you're reading your Bible and you come to this section and it's like, okay, yeah, 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 what do I care <laughs> about all these numbers? And we just think it's irrelevant to us and we just move on. We just skip over most of it, right? Here's what you're missing. With the largest number of people camped on the east and the smallest number on the west, and an almost identical number of people on the north and south sides of the tabernacle. It meant, if you could have looked down on Israel camped in the wilderness from a high mountain, or if we had been back there, we could have climbed in a helicopter and flew over the camp of Israel, looking down, what would you have seen? Across. And in the very center was the tabernacle, the place where God and man came together for fellowship. The cross of Jesus Christ is the place where God and man come together for fellowship. Through the cross, we have been saved. And we celebrated that tonight with communion. Our God loved us so much that he gave his only begotten son. And Jesus was a willing sacrifice. Of course, Jesus hung on that cross. He was the very center of that cross. Without him, that cross would have been meaningless. But it's at the cross that man and God come together for the purpose of fellowship. And right in the middle of the camp would have been the tabernacle, and um, as we have just said. Uh, so it was just amazing. Uh, i love to see things like this the holy spirit just fills his word with these things and it's just a blessing right Uh, revelation 4 verse 8 john said the four living creatures each having six wings were full of eyes around and within now these six wings correspond to what isaiah saw when he saw the throne of god in isaiah chapter 6 verse 2 he called these creatures seraphim Seraphim. The eyes speak of comprehension. Comprehension. Uh, guys, these are not robots. The King James unfortunately translates this um, creatures or something to that effect and gives us the impression they're like animals, uh, something less than human beings, uh, like pets around the throne of God. Absolutely not. Guys, absolutely not. These are highly intelligent, spectacular, angelic beings. In fact, we we learn in Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 14, that Lucifer was such a being. There are classes of angels. And, and you know, like any army, you have your grunts, okay? Uh, and you work your way up to the top commanders, right? Well, Lucifer was the top angel in heaven, called a cherub, the plural is cherubim, but he was the top angel in heaven. Not only that, the Bible tells us that he was the worship leader of heaven. In other words, he was a musical being. The Bible says that his voice was like the sound of a thousand pipe organs singing praise to God. as the prince of the power of the air, as Paul calls him in the New Testament. He uses the power of music quite effectively. Music is a very powerful medium. Very powerful medium. Um, I remember things that I... Words to songs. I can still recite to you the, the entire... All the words of, of, of you know Miss American Pie... How in the world do I remember that? Right, Joe? It's not an easy song. There's a lot to it, right? I Because st- I learned the, the words because of the music. Music is a very powerful medium to either indoctrinate for good or for evil. The Bible says fill our minds with praise for our God. That will teach us or indoctrinate us uh, with the knowledge of God, and it's good. The devil wants to get in there and indoctrinate people, and is, with music that is bad, harmful. Uh, words that are uh, horrible. Um, hip-hop and gangster rap and, and hard uh, metal. and I don't even know what's out there anymore. I don't keep track of it all. But, um, but music is a very powerful medium. I remember reading how that in 140 AD there was a heretic called Marcion. And he decided he was going to kind of rewrite, he was going to kind of write his own canon of scripture. And he was very successful in indoctrinating people with his own doctrines because he was a gifted songwriter and he put his doctrines to jingles. And people would sing his doctrine. And the devil used it to indoctrinate a great, to a great degree. It's going on today. It's going, to, you know, Lucifer is called the prince of the power of the air, Right? I think today we would be absolutely on solid ground to expand it to say he is the prince of the power of the airwaves as well. Whatever the the other stuff is, I do believe in part uh, he is the prince of the power of the airwaves. And he pretty much controls uh, radio and television. Uh, You know, and um, of course Christians, God... Thank God we have some of it, but by far the devil has most control of the media. The media, and uh, he uses music uh, very powerfully to indoctrinate young people, especially. And uh, so, uh, but he's uh, he's a real he's a real being, and uh, some people think no, he's just a uh, how do they put it? He's just a, a kind of a idea. Well, I don't know, man. He's an idea, idea that's been giving me a lot of hassle uh, over the years, right? Uh, you know, so yeah, you know, he's real. But, but verse eight. Again, the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes uh, 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 around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, "Holy, holy, holy, Lord God Almighty, who was and is and who is to come." Now, that's just a way of saying that God is eternal. God is eternal. God is the great I am, right? He's not the great I was or the great I will be. He is the great I am, which means God lives in the perpetual present tense. There is no past tense for God. There is no future tense. Everything is happening right in front of God because he's outside of time, right? He is in the eternal present tense. He he, he is, he's always there, right? Uh, Is, was, is to come, because he's constant, is the idea, right? I want you to notice, though, that these angelic beings, these cherubim, constantly say, holy, 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 right? Not love, love, love. Mm -hmm. Not mercy, mercy, mercy. Not grace, grace, grace. God's all of that, isn't he? And I say that because if there is one attribute that describes God more than any other, it would be his holiness. And I say that because there are those people that want to key in on God's love. That's the attribute they zero in on. Many unbelievers who believe in God but are not saved, you'll find that they're always focusing on the love of God. Why is that? Because they're not really living. For God, they're not obeying what God has said. They're sleeping around, living with a boyfriend, a girlfriend, whatever. But they comfort themselves by telling themselves, "Well, God is love." And what that is intended to to mean to them is that I know I'm not living the way God has commanded. But God's love, He He is love, and He won't send me to hell because He's a loving God. And, and this Satan has greatly deceived them because anyone who thinks that they can live contrary to what God has said and just bank on the fact that because God is love, he is going to not judge them but allow them to come into heaven is a great mistake. As we have said before, God's love is an awesome thing. First uh, John 4, 8, God is love. And we thank him for being love. Right? But as we have pointed out, God's love can't save you. God's love has never saved anybody. All God's love can do is provide a way by which you might be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. That's his part, that's his love and operation. What's our part? That whosoever believes in Jesus would not perish in hell but have everlasting life see that's our part yes god is love and god's love has provided a way by which people could be saved not spend eternity in hell become his children spend eternity with him in heaven but they have to repent and they have to receive christ by faith that, that's a very important point and a lot of people don't understand that um, they think that because god is love that's all they need The rich young ruler, I think Mark's the only gospel that says this. When the rich young ruler came up to Jesus and started to engage the Lord in conversation, Lord, I want to get to heaven, what must I do, and so on. And after Jesus told him what was required, it says that Jesus looked at this young man and loved him. Loved him. But this rich young ruler went away unsaved because he wouldn't give up his money which was on the throne of his heart. And Jesus said, look, if you want to come follow me, there's something in your life. This is a, was unique. It wasn't a universal thing. What was unique to this man's life, what was keeping Jesus from really being able to sit down on the throne of this man's heart and lead his life was the fact that this man had a lot of money. And Jesus, hindering your relationship with me. Give it away, and then come follow me. And he went away very sorrowful because he was, had great wealth and didn't want to give it up. So even though Jesus loved him, Jesus' love couldn't save him because he, this man had another God on the throne of his heart. And uh, God won't share uh, our lives with any other God or any other love, right? So it's interesting. Why do the cherubim keep saying holy three times? Holy, holy, holy. This continues, right? Well, very simply because God is a triune God consisting of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons. Understand, we are not polytheists as Christians. We believe in one God. We are monotheists. But that one God is made up of three separate and distinct persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each one being absolutely holy, absolutely holy. In Samuel chapter 2, verse 2, Hannah, Hannah said, there is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one holy like the Lord. One author defined God's holiness this way. He said, and I quote, God's holiness is his utter and complete separation from evil in uh, from evil in any and every form, he is absolutely un, untainted by any evil error or wrongdoing, unlike angels, some of whom sinned, or humans, all of whom sinned. End quote. Turn to First Peter chapter one. 1 Peter 1, starting with verse 14. Peter has just gotten done talking about how we have been saved, right? How God has saved us. We are now his children. And he says in verse 14, as obedient children. This is what we need to start doing, living obedient lives to God. Not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance. When you were unbelievers, you lived a certain way. Now you're... God's children, you are to live a new way, not in your former uh, former losses in your ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, "Be holy, for I am holy," says the Lord. And Peter is drawing from this. He is uh, when he says this, he is uh, re- looking back to Sinai. When God brought his people out of Egypt, first thing he did was lead them to the base of Sinai where he proposed a covenant with them. And basically he said, look, I want to be your God and I want you to be my people. And I want to enter into a covenant with you. It's up to you though, right? This covenant is going to mean that you belong to me. I belong to you. We're going to have this exclusive loving relationship. Well, oh, the people heard that and thought that was a great idea. And so God says, well, Moses, come up to the top of the mountain, I'll give you the terms of the covenant, which wound up being the Ten Commandments, right? But, but when God was then fa- finalizing the covenant with God's people, he told them, look, now you belong to me, and I want you to live a holy life. The word holy is a word that means separate, separate. In the Greek, it's hagias, not hagendas. Hagias. <laughs> which means to be separated. Uh, The church, the church, right? In the Greek, it's ekklesia. comes from two Greek words, ek, out of, kaleo, to call. The church is a group of called out ones. Called out from where? Called out from the world, still in the world, no longer of the world. And that's the key, right? That's the key. Sometimes Christians think because they're still in the world, they can act like the world. No, absolutely not. And that's what God was saying to his people, Israel. Egypt was a type of the world. He had just delivered them. And what he was saying to them is, look, how you lived your lives when you were slaves in Egypt is one thing. But now you belong to me. And I want you to live a separated life, a holy life, a life that honors me, a life of obedience to me, right? I want to use you as an example to the rest of the world. That if a person or a people make me their God, I will bless them, watch over them, provide for them, and so on, right? We will enter into this wonderful, uh, exclusive covenant with each other. Like marriage, right? In fact, the Bible likens our relationship to Jesus to a marriage, right? I mean, of all the men and women in the world that you could have chosen to be a spouse, you chose the person that you married. And that... Allowed you to enter into a very special covenant, an exclusive covenant, or it should be, where you know you are uh, exclusive to each other. This is what God wants for us uh, as His people. He doesn't want us having any other idols in our hearts, any other loves. He wants to be our our first love, our our you know our only love, really, uh, in that regard, right? Um, But this was God's way of saying to his people that I want you to live a new life now. You belong to me. And Peter is saying, look, just as God uh, proposed a covenant to Israel at Sinai now through the blood of Christ, he has proposed a covenant with you and you have entered into that covenant. You belong to him now. You are his children and be obedient children. Don't live like you used to live. Your former conduct is no longer uh, acceptable. God wants you to live a new life. Uh, That's important because holiness is something that a lot of churches don't stress anymore. It sounds archaic, kind of negative, you know, judgmental. But Hebrews 12, 12, 14 says, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now here's the thing. As we have said in the Christian life, there is the positional, and the practical. Hebrews 10, 14 puts them both together. I love it. He has perfected forever, positional, those who are being sanctified, the practical, right? When the writer in Hebrews 12, 14 says, pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord, I have to believe He's talking, first of all, about positional holiness. Are you a Christian? Because if you're a Christian, if you gave your heart to Christ, then invisibly, miraculously, supernaturally, God took you out of the world and put you in the body of Christ. You have been separated from the world, right? You are holy positionally. Now, if that's true, and you really have become born again, you're really a Christian, it's going to show up in the way you live practically. None of us are perfect. We're not going to live a perfect, holy life this side of glory. But if you're really born again, it should manifest itself in fruit, the fruit of holiness, practically speaking, right? And the writer is saying, look, if you're not manifesting, I'll paraphrase, practical holiness, either you're severely backslidden or you're not saved at all. And do you want to take the chance that you're backslidden when you might not be saved? Hey, don't play games. Get right with God. Don't be playing fast and loose with the world, right? Because if you're not walking with the Lord, if you're living in sin and carnality, you might be a backslidden Christian, but you might be a flat-out unbeliever. A lot of those folks are going to stand before, well, all of them will stand before Jesus as He talked about in Matthew 7 on the day of judgment. He said, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we... Cast out demons and prophesy and do all kinds of other great works in your name. And he will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. There's a lot of self-deception in the body of the church today. When I say the body of Christ, uh, I'm talking about the church, the visible church, the building on the corner that has a lot of people come every Sunday. Some of them saved, some are not saved. Calvary Chapel. Uh, We have people in our church, most of whom I believe are saved. But we have some. I don't know where they are with the Lord. I have my doubts. I don't see really any fruit. They come. They hear the word. But as Paul said to Titus, uh, a young pastor, uh, many profess to know God, but in works they deny him. Uh, By their lifestyle, they they talk the talk, but their lifestyle indicates something's wrong. Something's wrong. You, You can't be born again. The Spirit of God inside of you, the Holy Spirit, and live a carnal life um indefinitely yeah you first get saved sure you're going to be carnal you're a babe in christ you got to grow but 20 years later i've seen people that profess to know christ for 30 years yikes i mean their walk is like wow and i, I worry for them i mean how could you be carnal for 30 years I mean, we all go through periods maybe we backslide but but you know, to me, that indicates a person who's not saved at all. So holiness is important. But, but understand though that when we talk about holiness and God says, Be holy as I am holy, we're not that's not the holiness we can attain to, this side of glory, right? God is absolutely holy, he is perfectly holy. John said, In him is light and, and no darkness at all. God isn't just mostly holy. He's not 99.999% holy and a little bit of unholiness. No. He is absolutely holy, right? Perfectly holy. And um, we, we need to understand that when God talks about us being holy, again, it starts with receiving Christ, but then living for the Lord throughout your day, right? Where? You're not hanging with the old friends, going to the old places, um, watching stuff on TV that's going to pollute your mind. There's a new heart. There's a desire to walk in a new life, uh, newness of of life. Uh, Again, a holy life, a separated life, in the world but not of the world, right? We've said it before. Let me say it again. Uh, It's it's okay to be in the world. God's put us here. Um, Just like it's okay for a ship to be in the sea. But watch out when the sea gets into the ship. It's okay for a Christian to be in the world, but watch out when the world gets into the Christian. There's a, lot, a lot of Christians, they have allowed the world to seep in. How? Because as John says in 1 John 2, 15-17, all that is in the world has been orchestrated by the devil to appeal to the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. These are not of the Father. They are of the world. And when you allow the devil to use those three portals, the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life, to allow the world to seep in, you're going to become carnal. You're going to become disconnected from God uh, in a practical sense. The fruit of the Spirit will wither. The flow of the Spirit will dry up. I mean, you'll be saved, but living in the wilderness, yeah, out of Egypt, but not in the promised land, which is the life of the Spirit. That's a... My pastor used to say that's the most miserable place for any Christian to be in. In the wilderness, right? Too much of the Lord in them to be comfortable any longer in the world, and yet too much of the world in them to be comfortable around spirit-filled Christians. And so they're in this limbo. Horrible place, right? Miserable place. And so what happens? What was the ch- what characterized the children of Israel in the wilderness? Murmuring, complaining, bickering, in fighting you show me a church that manifests those things on a consistent basis I will show you wilderness Christians the goal is God wants us to come into the promised land and that happens by faith by the way you believe that the the power of God is available to you and you say to the Holy Spirit Lord I, I want you to live your life through me lord jesus through the power of the spirit live your life through me and i believe that you have promised that you will give me the power to walk in victory to walk in the spirit to be in the promised land of my christian life if i will walk by faith trust your promises and stay away from places and people that are going to just bring me down it's just you know something we just have to um understand well back revelation chapter four um and i think we're going to as i look at the time gonna have to stop here um next week we'll pick it up in verse nine and there's some very important things i don't want to rush through and so we'll we'll wait but um so much that the lord is trying to communicate to us right and um now more than ever guys as the world is getting worse and worse we have to get closer and closer to god i mean you thought it was hard to walk with god before it's going to become really hard to walk with god think of daniel in babylon and the reason daniel could be such a victorious person living in the worst possible spiritual environment babylon is used in scripture as a, uh, a type of every form of wickedness in this world. How could Daniel walk with God in a place like that? Because it says he purposed in his heart he was going to walk with God. You're not going to live for God by accident. You can only, you're only going to live for God on purpose. And you have to purpose every day today I am going to walk with God by God's grace. Not me, I'm not <laughs> saying I'm going to do it but I desire it with all my heart. And now, Lord, today I lay lay my life on the altar of sacrifice. Take me as a living sacrifice. Fill me with your spirit. Give me the power to live for you, to be a light. And then you step out in faith. It starts with the mind. It starts with purposing in your heart. And so it's going to be getting worse and worse. And may God give us the grace to draw closer and closer to him. Because as things get more and more dark around us, the closer we get to Jesus, the light will begin to shine brighter and brighter. And there are people out there who are going to come to Christ. They're looking for, they're looking for a way. They're terrified, and it's going to get worse. They're terrified at what's coming. I mean, they, they hear the reports; the whole country could implode uh, and descend into, into civil war and chaos. And a lot of people are genuinely terrified and here we are with the peace of god in our hearts because we know what's going on worst thing for christians to do right now is to panic become as terrified as the world why would we do that we our god's on the throne no matter what happens politically he's on the throne and we know where we're going to spend eternity so stay calm keep your eyes on jesus and uh, let god use you in these last days because he wants to and he will if we will just trust in him. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. And Lord, what a blessing your word is to us. It is really a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. And we thank you, Lord, as we feed on it, we are strengthened, we are edified. And give us grace, Lord, to go out into this dark world, filled with your spirit, overflowing with your spirit, that people might see the love, the peace, and even the joy in us, and be absolutely dumbfounded, and run to us and say, what is with you? How could you have joy and peace and all that in the midst of this chaos and so on? Well, I know Jesus, and uh, he's the Prince of Peace, and he is in complete control. And Lord, give us grace to be that kind of witness. Father, we thank you now. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.